Before we uh, begin, let's uh, bow our heads and ask the Lord to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the interest that you have in our emotions and our emotional intelligence. And as we study this great subject this morning, we pray that your spirit would guide us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Another title of this presentation, outside of improving emotional intelligence, is Set Free. Uh, And I've also titled it something else, Clearing the Channel for the Spirit of God, Preparing for God to Work in Us Mightily. It turns out in order to be open, completely open for the Spirit of God, you must have a high degree of emotional intelligence. And we'll talk about uh, this uh, here during this session. To deal with minds is the greatest work ever committed to men, says that great uh, two-volume series, Mind, Character, and Personality. And it's uh, one of the reasons why I haven't rejected this work. I can tell you, uh, particularly when you're dealing with the mentally ill, is what uh, I I deal with uh, frequently, and layers of mental problems. Uh, Sometimes uh, you you wish during those sessions to be able to see a heart attack uh, or gastroesophageal reflux disease or something that is of more concrete physical nature where we can try to correct it and fix it. Uh, right away. Uh, but uh, actually, the rewards of this work are, are beyond that. And although uh, sometimes more taxing uh, for those of us who are involved in it, uh, it still is, I believe, the greatest work ever committed to men. And this isn't just for those uh, like myself who are dealing with mental health issues, but really it's for the common uh, person who, the ordinary Christian, so to speak, Uh, who has uh, joined God's ranks, you need to be able to know how to deal with the minds around you in order to be highly effective for him. Emotional intelligence. Uh, There have been a number of studies done in the last few years on EQ and emotional intelligence, and it turns out it contributes more to successful and enjoyable living than IQ does. Now, studies, uh, this isn't to denigrate IQ. Uh, IQ is important. Actually, did you know it's related to how long you'll live? Uh, It's an independent uh, analysis of longevity, but not only longevity, how long you'll be functional uh, during your living time. Uh, IQ is related to that. It's also very much related to the job that you get out of college. How many of you are in high school or college uh, here today, okay, the majority of you. And so the job that you get out of college is uh, very linearly related to your IQ. However, how far you advance in that job is not at all related to your IQ. And we've had people misunderstand that, particularly those that are very bright, and they get these good jobs, and then they don't get promotions in the workplace. And promotions are being... Uh, handed out to those who have lesser IQs. And uh, they'll come to me and they'll explain that the people in their workplace don't have a high enough IQ to recognize their IQ, and thus they're being passed over. Uh, But in reality, uh, their intelligence is being recognized, but it's their emotional intelligence. And in fact, even presidential leadership, if you take a look at our 40-plus presidents that we've had in this nation, Uh, Many of them great individuals, less than a handful of them had very high IQs. 
all of them had above average EQs, however. And so their success was much more dependent upon their emotional intelligence. In fact, it's actually more, much more dependent upon their EQ, how successful they are even during their presidency. And so EQ is indeed important. And since emotional intelligence is what? Learned rather than inherited, it can be improved upon. IQ has three different variables to it. it genetics are a very important variable. If your parents had very high IQs, there's a greater chance that you're going to have a high IQ. But it's also dependent upon your development, uh, the surroundings, uh, and how you are being raised. And then on top of that, it's also dependent on even things that you're eating, choices that you're making, everyday choices, etc. There are ways that we can improve the IQ as well, but it's much more difficult to improve the IQ after age 18 or 20 uh, than it is the EQ. However, emotional intelligence can be improved upon. In fact, it can be improved upon throughout life. Okay, here's the EQ test. We're just going to take the first 15 questions. Actually, I think it may be the first 16. And then we'll leave the, the last four questions for the end of this uh, hour uh, session. Uh, the EQ uh, test, again, yeah, hopefully you have a pen and, and a paper and you can number it 1 through 20. There's going to be 20 multiple choice questions here, and this comes from a standardized EQ test. Now, in answering these first ones, most of the time is going to be A, B is going to be often, C sometimes, D rarely, and E almost never. And we want you to be very honest with yourself. These are questions about yourself and how you relate to certain uh, uh, situations, people, etc. And so be honest in regards, if you really want to get an accurate EQ, you have to be honest. Number one, I panic when I have to face someone who is angry. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never. I panic when I have to face someone who is angry. If it's most of the time, uh, when, you're, uh, when you recognize that, that would be A, and if you're facing angry people, you know you have to face them, etc., but you never panic, that would be an E, and then there's some in between. Number two, when I have a major personal problem, I cannot think about anything else. When you have a major personal problem, can't think about anything else. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, almost never, would be E. Number three, when people close to me experience a setback, I can easily come up with ways to help them overcome their distress. So this is someone who's close to you. They experience a significant setback. I can easily come up with ways to help them overcome their distress. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, almost never. Number four. I feel uncomfortable when I am expected to console others. I feel uncomfortable when I'm expected to console others. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, almost never. Number five, I am bored. That's not talking about now. That's talking about <laughs> most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never. It 
could include now as well. Number six, when I see someone I know, I'm able to pick up on what he or she is feeling right away. So this is someone you know, and you're able to pick up on what they're feeling right away. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never. Okay, you ready to go to the next set? Okay. The next set is still A through E, but it's going to be a little different. A is strongly agree. B is agree. C, you're in the middle. You somewhat agree and you somewhat disagree. D, you disagree. And E, you strongly disagree. Number seven, some people make me feel bad about myself no matter what I do. Think, are there people in your life that come across you, whether it's someone close or someone that's not close to you? Some people make me feel bad about myself no matter what I do. If you strongly agree, that would be an A. B, agree, somewhat agree, disagree, C, disagree, D, and strongly disagree would be an E. Number eight, I am skilled at reading people. I am skilled at reading people. Strongly agree, agree, somewhat agree, disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Number nine, it is better to remain neutral and detached towards a person until you really get to know him or her. It is better to remain neutral and detached towards a person until you really get to know him or her. Do you strongly agree with that statement? Agree, somewhat agree, disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Number 10, when I see something that I want, I can hardly think of anything else until I obtain it. I had an experience with someone in here today trying to obtain a meal ticket for the breakfast. Uh, when I see something that I want, I can hardly think of anything else until I obtain it. Strongly agree, agree, somewhat agree, disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Number 11, when I've been humiliated, I still feel ashamed or embarrassed weeks after the incident. When I've been humiliated, I still feel ashamed or embarrassed weeks after the incident. Strongly agree, agree, somewhat agree, disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Number 12, people who are overtly emotional make me feel uncomfortable. You know, people who are overtly emotional, they wear their emotions on their sleeves. People who are overtly emotional make me feel uncomfortable. Strongly agree, agree, somewhat agree, disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Okay, number 13. And again, this is a little different. It's back to this one. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never for you. Number 13, I say things that I later regret. Be honest, I say things that I later regret. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never. Number 14, I run into obstacles that keep me from reaching my goals. Run into obstacles that keep me from reaching my goals. A is most of the time, B would be often, sometimes, rarely, and E, almost, never. Number 15, I overreact to minor problems overreact to minor problems. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never. 
And now, number 16. Which statement or statements describe how you feel? A. When I am unhappy, it is usually caused by things which are outside my control. When I'm unhappy, it's usually caused by things which are outside my control. That's true for you, that would be A. B, I can be happier by avoiding life's difficulties, unpleasantness, and responsibilities. And by the way, both of those might be true for you, so wait, if they're both true, wait, there'll still be a choice to, to choose from. C, the events in my past are the cause of most of the problems I now have, and thus their influence on me cannot be eradicated. The events in my past are the cause of most of the problems I now have, and thus their influence on me cannot be eradicated. Now, if A, B, or C, if just one of those are true, write that letter down. If two out of those three are true for you, put a D. If all of the above are true, put an E. And if none of them are true, put an F. Okay, let me quickly. Yeah, I overreact to minor problems. Most of the time, often, sometimes, rarely, or almost never is number 15. Okay, and this is number 16. Now, the last four we'll take uh, later on towards the end of this session. So we're not done with the EQ test yet. There are five components of emotional intelligence. We didn't tell you these five components until after this portion of the test. Uh, for obvious reasons. The five components of emotional intelligence, knowing our emotions is one of them. To be able to identify your emotion is an important aspect of emotional intelligence. Managing our emotions. People with low EQ are managed by their emotions. And so they react to their emotions, and they're continually managed by their emotions. People with a high degree of emotional intelligence actually manage their own emotions. Recognizing emotions in others is the third aspect of emotional intelligence, to be able to recognize emotions in others. Fourth, managing relationships with others. Our ability to form relationships. This, of course, is, uh, plays into the presidential politics, as I mentioned. This is why presidents have higher-than-average EQs. Uh, their ability to manage relationships is higher than the average in the general public. And then motivating ourselves to achieve our goals. Motivation is not IQ, it's EQ. And this is why some people with very high IQs are not very successful in life. They have a, a great brain but they're not motivated to utilize that brain. And thus, they never reach anywhere close to their full potential because of their lack of EQ or lack of emotional intelligence. Now, emotional intelligence has been shown in a number of studies to help even normal people. Sometimes we think of emotional intelligence just being low in those who are uh, having mental problems. But emotional intelligence helps people think clearer, it helps them communicate more effectively. So communication, effective communication, is part of emotional intelligence. It fosters unity in group settings. And it reduces polarizing statements. But the interesting thing about those last two, actually all of these, is that when the emotional intelligence 
is high, all of this is accomplished without compromise or sacrificing the truth. A lot of individuals think the only way you can have unity in a group setting is to get to the lowest common denominator in the group and put all these differences aside. That's a very superficial unity that's very easily disturbed. And a stressful situation will, will totally disturb that type of unity. A unity that is based on a high amount of emotional intelligence, it, uh, you will have less polarizing statements, but all of this is accomplished without compromise or sacrificing the truth. Well, let's take a look on the influences on EQ. These are, again, a, a summary of a number of different uh, controlled studies on the subject. Our genetic makeup does have a role in regards to our EQ, or emotional intelligence. Our childhood experiences also have a role in regards to EQ, not just IQ, but EQ, uh, but in different ways. Our current level of emotional support, if there is a high level of emotional support, there's a tendency to have a higher EQ, at least during that time. And then there are physical conditions, such as lack of sleep, poor nutrition or illness. If you're lacking in sleep, 72 hours haven't slept, and you have a stressful situation confront you that's not controlled by you, your chance of exhibiting lack of emotional intelligence as a result of that situation goes up significantly, simply due to the lack of sleep. Poor nutrition also has a significant role to play on EQ. Uh, Terry Moreland, who ran a number of the state prisons in California, recognized the role that this played. And many individuals are uh, having problems with the law simply because of their lack of EQ. And so what he would do is, when the prisoners came into his prison, he would have a dietitian talk to them about a diet that could improve their emotional intelligence. Now, it turned out that diet was a plant-based diet uh, that had omega-3, etc. And many of the prisoners thought it was punishment enough to be in prison, but it was cruel and unusual punishment to be on a plant-based vegetarian diet. And so they chose to be on the typical American diet in that prison. But there were others that said, hey, I'm in prison. You know, this dietitian is telling me some studies that might help me. Why not? Well, if I'm going to be on this diet, why not do it when I'm in prison? So quite a few of them also chose that diet. And then that became a study group. And it turns out the group that was on the plant-based diet, they still had stressful situations on that side of the prison. But the prisoners during those stressful situations would be controlled the vast majority of instances. In fact, many of the prisoners would say, you know, if this type of situation happened on the outside, I would have lost it. And I would have been tempted to lash out or even injure that person who did that. But here... I was totally in control of the situation. I did appropriate intervention. I asked questions in a, in a calm way, but I had control. I wasn't in danger of losing my emotional control. And they stated, I think if I were eating like this on the outside, I probably would have never ended up in here. The, the difference that nutrition can play. Now, this has been shown even in non-prisoners. Uh, in, in those who are not prisoners, we have studies when we talk about nutrition and mental performance that shows that when you're in an uncontrolled, stressful situation and you're on a certain diet that, again, is emphasized by the plant-based vegetarian diet with appropriate omega-3, etc., that diet will actually improve your serotonin levels and will also uh, significantly improve your personal control under such situations. And so nutrition does have a significant role to play in regards to EQ. 
illness, when you're ill, you have a, uh, it's a threat to your EQ, and it can lower the EQ. But for many, these factors are of less significance when compared to the next slide. As important as all of these things are, these studies show us the most important influence on EQ is this. The major influence on EQ, our emotions are largely controlled by our what? Beliefs, our evaluation of events, the way we think about problems, and our silent self-talk. What is that talking about? That's talking about our thoughts, our moment-by-moment -moment thoughts have a vital role to play in regards to EQ. Are this yes. Yes, this, uh, this actually uh, comes from some studies done by Dr. Beck and Dr. Ellis. It is going to be in our upcoming book. We have a book coming out in May of 2008 called The Lost Art of Thinking. Uh, and the, the subtitle is Achieving Peak Mental Performance, but we'll have all of that, that evidence in there. Now, this is a recent study. Notice March 1, 2007, and notice who it was done on. It was actually done on people in the United States Army. Army researchers found that when they subjected a group of volunteers to two sleepless nights, the lack of shut-eye seemed to hinder participants' ability to make decisions in the face of emotionally charged moral dilemmas. Are we going to have some emotionally charged moral dilemmas as people who believe the truth? In the end time, there are going to be some emotionally charged moral dilemmas. And when they had two consecutive nights, they, uh, their ability to make decisions in the face of this was gone down significantly. Some volunteers changed their views of what was morally acceptable after they'd been awake for two days. But notice this. This was not universally true. Volunteers who at the beginning of the study scored high on a measure known as emotional intelligence did not waver on what they found morally appropriate. So if you have a high degree of EQ, even under significant stress, sleepless nights, morally charged dilemmas, you will still make the right decision. And this is, of course, uh, yeah, a lot of people have had under misunderstandings in regards to how could Christ in fallen humanity, do what he did with sleepless nights, all sorts of morally charged dilemmas, and still make the right decision at each point. The reason? He had developed a very high degree of emotional intelligence, and he did not waver, even under the most stressful situations. So this is why EQ is indeed uh, especially important for us who, who believe the truth. Now, there is a type of counseling that improves EQ. Uh, and there's a type of counseling, uh, and I wasn't, uh, didn't able, I wasn't able to attend all of uh, Dr. Park's presentations, but I, I did attend uh, one of them. And she talked about uh, some of the traditional psychotherapy techniques. This is the current textbook of Scientific American Medicine. It's a quote from it. Scientific American Medicine is a textbook that always stays up to date. It's written by professors from Harvard and Stanford University. This is under the section of depression. Traditional forms of psychotherapy have never been shown to be superior to taking a placebo in treating depression. Now, does placebo help some people? It appears to. A belief in something can often help. So just because someone has gone through traditional psychotherapy and seemingly improved, 
does not mean that it's the psychotherapy that improved them. And that's why with any study in medicine, if we really want to be sure that it's making a difference, we have to do a prospective controlled study. Uh, and, of course, the, the gold standard is a prospective randomized controlled study. And when these traditional forms of psychotherapy, and many of them have attractive elements from Freud, Erickson, Carl Jung, et cetera, Rogers, if you were to go to a counselor today, most likely you would be re receiving Rogerian uh, therapy. Uh, Carl Rogers uh, has very much pervaded uh, the, the, the clinical psychotherapy market. And even his theories, when put into practice in a, in a study group, have never been shown to be superior to taking a placebo uh, in treating depression. However, there is a type of therapy that is far better. Uh, and it's been shown to improve emotional intelligence and improve a number of mental health problems. It improves depression significantly. It improves phobias. It improves obsessive compulsive disorder. It improves post-traumatic stress disorder, anorexia, bulimia, and even addictions such as alcoholism. If you're wanting to overcome an addiction, the 12-step program has some, a lot of merit. But when you combine the 12-step program, such as is there in Alcoholics Anonymous, et cetera, with cognitive behavioral therapy, it improves the likelihood of overcoming by fourfold. And cognitive behavioral therapy centers in on getting rid of the, in fact, uh, even the author of AA talked about when you become sober, you have a high tendency for stinking thinking. You had it before. Uh, obviously, that's what led you into it. But as you become sober, that stinking thinking tends to lead you right back into the addiction again. And the cognitive behavioral therapy gets rid of that, and thus it's much uh, more effective. This is what studies are, are showing uh, in, the psych in the good perspective when we're doing prospective studies in the psychological world. Your feelings result from the messages you give yourself. Your feelings result from what? The messages you give yourself. Your thoughts have much more to do with how you feel than what is actually happening in your life. And thus, there, there are many examples, but probably one of the most profound in Scripture Paul and Silas, taken against their will, totally unfair, beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails. Their backs laid open, bloody, extremely sore, but then they're laid on an irregular dirt floor and their feet are put up in stocks. And there they are, crying uncontrollably, uncontrollably in prison and saying, why us, Lord? Is that what they were saying? They had happy looks on their faces and they were singing praises to God. Why is that? Their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was actually happening in their life. That's how important the thoughts are. And these weren't fantasy thoughts. These were true and accurate thoughts. And those thoughts had a significant impact on how they were feeling. What we think does affect who we are. Many people in this society, even among the student population, feel unfulfilled. And when you ask them why they feel unfulfilled, there may be reasons such as this. They're not smart enough. Their GPA isn't quite good enough, and they think that that's due to IQ. They're not successful enough. They're not attractive enough or talented enough to feel happy and fulfilled. Or if that's not the reason, they'll say that their negative feelings are strictly due to others. What others have said about them, what others are doing to them, how others have raised them, and so others will get the blame for why they're not successful. And, you know, there may be elements of truth in these things. Bad things do happen, and life beats up on most of us at times. 
However, all of these thoughts have the tendency to make us victims because we think the causes result from something beyond our control. In fact, there's a book written on cognitive behavioral therapy in the last couple of years, and that was the title of it, Manufacturing Victims. It talks about how traditional psychotherapy does that. It explains to the individual why they are the way they are and turns them into a victim because they had things happen to them that changed them that way that were beyond their control. However, cognitive behavioral therapy talks about this. In contrast, you can change the way you think about things. You can change the way you what? Think about things, and you can also change your basic values and beliefs. And I can tell you this is a paradigm shift in the psychological world. When I was in medical school, I went to a Christian medical school that I'm proud of, Loma Linda University, and I had my psychiatric rotations that I had to go on. And before I went out and did the psychiatric consults, the consults would come in, the students would do the, the initial workup and the consultation. Before we went out there and we were allowed to do that, we were sat down by the head psychiatrist there so that he could tell us how he wanted the consults done and the order that things should be in and what to ask, et cetera. And then he made a, a very uh, straightforward point. He said, whatever you do, in talking to these individuals, do not tamper with their values and beliefs. If you do so, you'll be crossing an ethical boundary and you will make them worse. This statement here came from Dr. Beck and Ellis, two secular, uh, one's a psychiatrist, the other's a psychologist, but two secular people from the agnostic standpoint, just based on studies that are being done, talking about you can change the way you think about things, and you can also change your basic values and beliefs. And here's their next statement. And when you do, you will often experience lasting changes in your mood, outlook, and productivity. So in other words, unless we can change the beliefs, the values, and the thoughts, we're not going to be able to permanently help the individual to get better. Research has documented that negative thoughts which cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain gross distortions. Negative thoughts that cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain what? Gross distortions. The thoughts on the surface appear valid, but you will learn that they are irrational or just plain wrong and that twisted thinking is a major cause of suffering. What's a major cause of suffering? Twisted thinking. So what is it that makes your mood mad, glad, or sad? This is where we go into the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy. The A is the activating event. We're going to skip the B for a moment and go to the C, which is the emotional consequence. And by the way, this is traditional psychotherapy. Traditional psychotherapy tells you that your emotional and, and behavioral consequences, whatever consequences come about, are a result of activating events primarily due to activating events in your life, or maybe events that you were hoping would happen and didn't happen. That can also be an activating event. Now, Dr. Ellis states that this is incorrect. In fact, he says A to C thinking, this is his term for it, crooked thinking, believing that we have little or no ability to influence our feelings and that events and situations directly cause our emotions and behavior is indeed crooked. Now, there's a term in scripture that's utilized repeatedly that means bent or crooked. Anyone know what that term is? If I regard iniquity in my heart, there's the term. Iniquity, the Lord will what? 
not hear me. Now, it's not because the Lord doesn't want to hear us. The Lord loves us. And yes, loves us unconditionally, although he doesn't love us all the same. There's two different things. He loves us all unconditionally, but he doesn't love us all the same. We went into that if you uh, want to hear more details about that uh, yesterday. Uh, but in some people, in fact, I was eating with someone at the, at the dinner table saying this thing that the Lord doesn't love us all the same. Remember, Daniel was the one greatly beloved. John, the one that, that loved. He desires to love us all the same, by the way. But love often is that, that closeness, intimate love has to be a two-way street. And one individual is saying, if God doesn't love us all the same, I think I think lesser about God because of that. And what are you doing with my perception with God? And my answer to that is, if you know a man who's a very good man in every respect, but he has chosen to marry one woman, does that mean that you think lesser of him because he married one woman? It's only one woman that he has that closeness and intimacy to. But, well, no, of course, uh, didn't think less, uh, lesser in that regard. Uh, but yet, the Lord desires us to be his bride. That's his desire. And so there's a closeness, intimate love that he has for some, and there's a pitying love he has for others that are not going his way. And so let's understand that. That's, a, that's the, the free part of our, our presentation today, uh, to throw that in. But this is talking about crooked thoughts. Now, there's something that the Bible states God cannot do. In fact, when I was in the third grade, I was asked, is there anything God cannot do? And my answer was, nope, God can do everything. But did you know the Bible states very clearly he can't do everything? Cannot lie. Old Testament says it, New Testament says it. Now, he's a free moral agent. He could if he wanted to. But he puts truth above himself. And unless we are willing to straighten out our thoughts into what's true... He won't be able to influence us. This is what this text is saying. Unless we are willing to straighten our thoughts into what is true, he cannot have the influence over us. So we still have the activating event. Some people have mistakenly stated that cognitive behavioral therapy or even stated that Dr. Nedley teaches the activating events don't matter. No, the A is still there. We still go into those activating events. But the activating event produces a belief and then an emotional consequence. And what cognitive behavioral therapy does, instead of going into all of these past events, this is what traditional psychotherapy does. It goes into all of these events, how you were raised, and what happened here, and what traumatic thing happened there, etc. And then it tries to get you to deal with those A's uh, somehow, uh, and to go back to uh, to those A's, etc. But cognitive behavioral therapy acknowledges the A, but what can be changed most readily is the B or the belief, and then what changes as a result is the emotional and the behavioral consequence. Well, there are 10 ways. There are 10 commandments in the Bible, and there are 10 ways of distorted thinking. And we're going to cover in this session five ways of distorted thinking. And in part two, we'll cover the next five uh, ways of distorted thinking. And all of these are, are vitally important. The first one is all-or-nothing thinking. An example of this is a, actually a successful state legislature, legislator in our area who was running uh, for U.S. Congress, a little higher office. He was part of the majority party. He thought he was going to be successful. He lost the election. 
He comes into me as a patient and says, Dr. Nedley, I lost the race for Congress. I am a big zero. And I could tell by the look on his face he believed what he was saying. Was that true? Because he lost the race for Congress, was he a big zero? No. Because you fail a test, does that mean you're a big zero? Because you get a divorce, does that mean you're a big zero? But that's where all or nothing thinking leads to. Uh, my friend doesn't agree with me on this issue, so he's completely non-supportive. Is that true? No, but that's all or nothing thinking. And, you know, in, the, in Bible times, we have those who didn't succumb to this, and we had those who did succumb to it. If you remember Jacob and Esau. Esau is a great hunter. He doesn't have so good a day this day. He was out there in the field all day, hadn't eaten anything, and hadn't found his catch. And he comes back pretty famished, totally exhausted and worn out, and smells his favorite dish being cooked out in the field. And he's so weak and famished, he says, Jacob, give this to me or else I'll what? Die. Jacob says, how bad do you want it? And Esau says, I want it bad. And Jacob says, all right, how about your birthright for it? And Esau says, well, if I don't eat it, I'm going to die, and I won't get the birthright anyways. So, yes, I'll sell the birthright. All or nothing thinking. And it turns out, for those who have analyzed such situa the situation and the, the net worth of Abraham and that passed it on to Isaac, he sold greater than the holdings of Donald Trump for a bowl of lentils. Now, it turns out Jacob was interested in the spiritual part of it, Esau the physical part. And the interesting thing about that story is in the end, both got what they wanted. When Isaac died, they were both there together, and Jacob gave all of the assets to Esau uh, and let him have all of the financial part of things. The only thing Jacob turned out to be interested in was the spiritual part of that. But yet you could see that all-or-nothing thinking led to significant problems. And even the temptation to all-or-nothing thinking given by Jacob led to significant problems in his own life that would have never happened had it not been for that distorted thought. Results of all-or-nothing thinking, low self-worth ends up being one of the results. Procrastinators. How do procrastinators get into this? They'll say, I can't get it all done now, so why even start? All-or-nothing thinking. Inability to complete or even start projects. Inflation of a problem. Frustration results from all-or-nothing thinking. And then pessimism is much more readily there at hand for the all-or-nothing thinkers. Discouragement tends to come in. And the ultimate all-or-nothing thinking is the suicidal thoughts. Yes, question. I have a question. The all-or-nothing thinking is the essence of the First Amendment. Okay, that's a good uh, point. Now, let me, let me just clarify some things in regards to this. Cognitive behavioral therapy talks about distorted thoughts. Are the, are the thoughts that I mentioned, the examples, truly distorted? Yes. Now, there is inappropriate all-or-nothing thinking. Not all all-or-nothing thinking is untruthful. For instance, just in the physical sense, when a muscle fiber, for those of you who have been in biology, when a muscle fiber contracts, it either contracts all or not at all. Now... 
it's not just a muscle fiber contracting when your biceps are there. How strong that bicep is depends on how many muscle fibers are recruited to contract at the same time. And this is why over the course of time by training, you can actually improve that. But as far as one muscle fiber is concerned, it's either all or nothing. Uh, as far as a neuron, when a neuron fires, it either fires all the way or not at all. And so there are definite all or nothing thinking. And ultimately, all are either going to be saved or lost. And so there is the appropriate aspect, but we need to discern, is this appropriate all-or-nothing thinking or is it inappropriate? And often uh, we can, through God's grace, line up those thoughts with what's true. Most of humanity has a problem with inappropriate all-or-nothing thinking. They're thinking all-or-nothing thinking that is not anywhere close to it, and then those same people have a tendency to disregard the true all-or-nothing thoughts. Second uh, aspect is overgeneralization. This is another, uh, it can be very distorted thought. Overgeneralization is holding the hypothesis as a fact rather than a hypothesis. Now, an example of this was a sweet mate of mine at uh, Andrews University. I went to uh, Andrews for my undergraduate in pre-med. And our second year, we uh, had across our suite some uh, other pre-med students. We were kind of studying together. And one individual, nice-looking young sophomore, uh, a pre-med student, had a uh, actually had a um, high IQ, was doing very well, uh, and uh, we liked him uh, a lot. But he was shy, and he had his eye on a girl for about six months before he mustered up enough courage to ask her out. And finally, he did so. I guess that's maybe some of the difference between Andrews and and Southern Adventist University. Uh, the shyness level seems to be significantly higher in the Northern Plains. Uh, but uh, there at, uh, at, at Andrews, he finally mustered up enough courage to ask her out, and we thought he had a high likelihood of success. And he comes back to the dorm, and he's shaking his head, and his head is down, and he's walking real slow. And I thought, hmm, I wonder how things went. And so I said, Glenn, what happened? And he says, Neil, I'm destined to be lonely and miserable the rest of my life. <laughs> what did she say? She said she had another event and couldn't go. And so you conclude that, I said. And he said, I got to thinking about it. If she just thought half as much about me as I think about her, she would have changed that event and gone along with me. So I'm destined to be lonely and miserable the rest of my life. Well, Glenn had overgeneralized in two ways. The first way he had overgeneralized was because she turned him down once, she was what? Always going to turn him down. Did he know that to be true? No, but he certainly assumed it. The second overgeneralization he made was that 100% of eligible women had identical taste to hers. And thus he would be endlessly rejected uh, the rest of his life. Now, generalization, overgeneralization is always a distorted thought. Generalization is part of IQ. Generalization is making appropriate generalizations. But there is a tendency for those that have high IQs to actually overdo it and get into the distorted aspects of things simply because they're used to uh, generalizing. They generalize from too few instances, for instance. Uh, they might have six or seven instances that hit them and that do all the same thing, and so they make this assumption and they overgeneralize. Elijah was guilty of this. Elijah was set into major depression due 
to his response to a couple of events in his life after the great pinnacle there at Mount Carmel. And it wasn't just those activating events. It was the belief that led to his emotional consequence. And as I mentioned yesterday, the Lord had to put him on a depression recovery program. First, he gave him food. The angels came and fed him food. He, he was put on an exercise program. And then he was told to get out of the cave. In fact, he wouldn't get out of the cave. So the Lord had to do some fireworks to get that man out of the cave and get that, get that sun out there and get the serotonin. And finally, after he did all of that spa experience on Elijah, the next thing he did for Elijah was cognitive behavioral therapy. And Elijah states, I'm the only one that has not bowed the knee to Baal. Holding that hypothesis of fact, generalizing from too few instances. And Elijah believed it so much, he repeated it. The Lord's trying to deal with him, and he repeats it later on. You know, if you see people just go back to their distortion and not wanting to give it up, you're actually in pretty good company because Elijah did the same thing. And finally, the Lord got through to him, no, you are dead wrong. There are how many? 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that was part of his recovery. Peter overgeneralized. He thought the gospel was not to go to any Gentile. Significant overgeneralization, and the Lord had to give him a pretty dramatic dream to straighten out that cognitive distortion. Peter understood the meaning of that dream clearly, and he no longer had that distorted thought uh, the rest of his life. Paul had an overgeneralization in the opposite sense. Every Christian should be killed. Talk about overgeneralizing to to the max. And Paul also had to be straightened out. People that overgeneralize repeatedly, particularly from too few instances, are described here by the pen of Ellen White. What it eventually results in. An obstinate man. A what type of man? obstinate will not be readily convinced of anything which his sight cannot take in. He adheres to his own plans and opinions, be they right or wrong. He will make assertions as though he had all the aftersight and will uphold his ideas as all sufficient. Self has for so long been the ruling element that the unfortunate man considers it a virtue to have, as he thinks, a mind of his own. If his way is not followed, he will raise objections on every occasion and in small matters and in large. He will hold to his words whether they are true or whether they are what? Entirely false. This practice, often repeated, grows into continued habit and becomes character. Let's beware of overgeneralization. The third cognitive distortion, mental filter. This is where a black ink gets put in a beaker of water and it turns the entire beaker this black ink uh, color. And an example of this was in medical school. We had an Asian uh, bright medical uh, student in our class. And at the end of the final exam in gross anatomy, histology, neuroanatomy, embryology, is probably the toughest exam I've taken. Uh, it, it was the, after my first semester of freshman year in medical school. Uh, I came out a little later than some of the students, and there was a group of them uh, gathered around, and this Asian girl was crying, almost uncontrollably so, and I thought something had happened to her physically, and I went over to find out what was going on, and she started talking about the test. She could think of 17 questions 
already. She hadn't even cracked the book yet. 17 questions that she had gotten wrong. And she knew if she thought of 17 already that she had misanswered, that she had failed the test. And she was talking about how she wasn't cut out to be a physician. She was being consoled by her fellow medical students. They wouldn't, she wouldn't be consoled. She went home and she told the whole story to her family and uh, said that it's no use for me going back to medical school. I failed. They tried to tell her, well, even if you failed this test, maybe next year you can repeat it. Maybe we can delay a year. But, uh, you know, still go back, see what biochemistry and physiology is like. And uh, she said, I've always wanted to be a physician, but I'm not cut out for it. I can't do it. They coerced her, really, back there for the winter semester. And with trembling hands, she takes that test out. And there it is, minus 17, 83%. This is by far the highest grade in the class, A+. So all of the mental torture she put us through as medical students, all of the mental torture she put her family through during that terrible Christmas break that they had together was all due to this mental filter of going over those 17 questions in her mind, just uh, focusing in on that uh, to the exclusion uh, of all else. Now you can have a mental filter in the other sense as well. Mental filter in the other sense? Samson, he saw a beautiful woman of Philistia, and he's talking about how great she is, and her parents, his parents tried to give him some cognitive behavioral therapy and to try to get him to analyze things from a more comprehensive standpoint, particularly the spiritual standpoint. And what does Samson do? What does he say? Get her for me, for she what? pleaseth me well. The mental filter aspect on just the superficial personality and the beautiful creature that he had in front of him was enough to say, this will outweigh all the rest. I'm going to utilize that mental filter and act on it. Was that wise? What a terrible mistake in just a few days I came about as a result of that mental filter. Joseph was tempted to have a mental filter. He was testing his brothers out when he was their governor. And, of course, he, this is something that he had thought about for years in prison. The, the, the words that they said to him, how they treated him, were being repeated. And although he had total power over them and could have taken revenge, when he identified himself, they knew that that was coming. But yet he said, no, you meant it for evil. God turned it into good. And he would not utilize that mental filter and respond in that way. Christ himself on the cross was tempted to utilize a mental filter with everything that was happening to him. And he said, no, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we get into mental filters, we often get into pessimism. Pessimism is very common in the human race. And here's another statement from the pen of Ellen White. It's the duty of everyone to cultivate cheerfulness instead of brooding over sorrow and troubles. Many not only make themselves wretched in this way, but they sacrifice health and happiness to a what type of imagination? A morbid imagination. There are things in their surroundings that are not agreeable. Is that true for all of us? Are there things in our surroundings that are not agreeable? Yes, there are things that are not agreeable. And their countenances wear a continual frown that more plainly than words expresses discontent. These depressing emotions are a great what? 
injury to them health-wise, for by hindering the process of digestion, they interfere with nutrition. While grief and anxiety cannot remedy a single evil. Grief and anxiety cannot remedy what? A single evil. They can do great harm. But cheerfulness and hope, while they brighten the pathway of others, are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. The fourth cognitive distortion, disqualifying the positive. Now, mental filter just takes a look, particularly the, the highest tendency is to take a look at the negative, although I also showed it can be taking a look at the positive and blowing that out of proportion. Number four, you acknowledge the positive, but you totally discount it. Uh, and so you're actually seeing it. So on the surface, it seems to be more objective, but in reality, it can be even more dangerous. An example of this to show you where it can lead to. This type of thinking, this girl was in the behavioral medicine unit. I was asked to consult on her for nutritional reasons. The psychiatrist said, Dr. Nedley, you handle her nutrition, and I will handle her medications, uh, and told me a little bit about her condition. And so I did. We changed some things nutritionally in her. In the next uh, couple of days, the uh, doctor was ready to dismiss her. At least that's what she told me. He said, he's coming in this afternoon. He's going to discharge me. But she says, you know what, Dr. Nedley? There is nobody in this world that cares a whipstitch about me. And I said, that's not true. I said, I wouldn't be here if I didn't care for you. I have a lot of other things I could do. I care for you. And furthermore, I've noticed the staff. They like being in your room. In fact, they've told me how much they've enjoyed being in your room and talking with you and cutting up with you. And she says, those people don't count. <laughs> Disqualifying the positive. Because they're not part of the real world. Anyone who's part of the real world cannot think anything positive about me. Well, fortunately, I'd been here the evening before when I saw her family and some of her friends visiting her. And I said, they came in and visited you. Obviously, they care something about you. And she says, those people don't count. <laughs> Why? Because they don't know the real me. Anyone who knows the real me recognizes I'm rotten to the core and can't think anything positive about me. Now, in reality, she had some elements of truth there because inside we all have some bad tendencies, etc. But yet she was disqualifying the positive, to totally saying those things don't count. And I had to call her psychiatrist and tell him that I thought she needed to stay for some cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, what disqualifying the positive also does is it affects motivation. Those that have motivation problems, this is their cognitive distortion or one of their primary cognitive distortions. Other examples. It sounds rewarding, but I know there are so many struggles accompanying those who try to win souls that I will be absolutely overwhelmed. Have you been to a soul-winning seminar, heard stories, and think, well, I'm sure that happened, and yeah, it happened to them, but if I get involved in this, I'm going to be absolutely overwhelmed. Disqualifying the positive. Saul. New David. And New David had a lot of positives, but he totally disqualified those positives and sought his life because of this cognitive distortion. Nabal. David was protecting his own flocks, but yet Nabal wasn't there to protect him. Here's some ways of combating the fourth cognitive distortion. Hannah Moore says, obstacles are those frightful things you see when you do what? Take your eyes off your goal. Stay focused on the goal. Don't disqualify the positive. Henry Ford says, think you can, think you can't. Either way, you'll be right. 
Thomas Fuller says he does not believe who does not live according to his belief. He does not believe who does not live according to his belief. Anne Frank says, I don't think of all the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. Lee Sock says, when it gets dark enough, you can see the stars. David Schwartz says, we can turn setbacks into victories. We can turn setbacks into what? Victories. Find the lesson, apply it, and move on. Then look back on defeat and smile. Abraham Lincoln says, determine that the thing can and shall be done, and then we shall find the way. Not disqualifying the positive. Having those goals, particularly important, truthful goals there, will keep us from getting discouraged. Will Rogers, I have uh, uh, a lot of respect for Will Rogers. Uh, he was a pilot from Oklahoma. The Oklahoma City Airport's named after him. Uh, and he, he was there in the Dust Bowl era when a lot of the Oklahomans migrated to California. And he stated that when that happened, the average IQ went up in both states. You have to have a little bit of IQ to understand that. Uh, but uh, he also said this, it's not what we don't know that hurts us so much. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. And this is what happens. Those that have lack of emotional intelligence assume they know things for sure that just ain't so. This is a study from Ohio State, 224 subjects, studies their degree of optimism and pessimism. Pessimism predicted anxiety, perceived stress, and physical disease. Optimism, what do you think optimism predicted? You would think the opposite, but actually it predicted nothing. There can be a problem with being too optimistic, and that is when reality continues to set in. However, most Americans have a problem with being too pessimistic. The study's author said, while the power on positive thinking is encouraged as a way to improve health and well-being, this study shows it's more important to do what? Avoid the negative thinking. The Zurich axiom goes like this. Optimism means expecting the best, but confidence means knowing how to handle the worst. Never make a move if you are merely optimistic. You need to have that confidence to know how to handle the worst. And when you have a high degree of EQ, you will be able to handle the worst. Okay, the last four questions of the EQ test. Question number 17. Ellen is the girl in pink here. What do you think Ellen is most likely thinking at the time this picture was taken? Bored, hopeful, stressed, terrified, shocked, cannot be determined, none of the above, or don't know. Now, bored would be A. These goes all the way through A to G. So A, B is hopeful, C is stressed, D is terrified, E is shocked, F cannot be determined, or none of the above. It's if, it, if it's either one of those, put F. And G is don't know. You remember part of the emotional intelligence, recognizing emotions in others. Now the next one, Stacy. Stacy is the one in red there in the front. What do you think she's most likely thinking at the time this picture was taken? Disgusted, excited, sad, happy, neutral? Cannot be determined, none of the above, or don't know? Disgusted, excited, sad, happy, neutral? Cannot be determined, none of the above, or don't know? She's the one with the hand raised, the hand raised there in the front. Okay, we'll go back to the choices on Ellen. This is Ellen here in pink. She's bored, hopeful, stressed, terrified, shocked, cannot be determined none of the above or don't know. Stacy is the one with her hand raised. 
She's disgusted, excited, sad, happy, neutral, cannot be determined, none of the above, or don't know. All the way A through G. Okay, we'll keep going. Steve. Steve is the one right behind the one with her hand raised. With that, um, I don't know what you would describe it, but I'll let you describe the look on his face. What do you think Steve is most likely thinking at the time this picture was taken? Neutral, sad, amused, curious, joyful, cannot be determined, none of the above, or don't know. And now question number 20. Imagine that Ellen is returning from a visit with her boyfriend who has unexpectedly broken up with her. This is the one in pink. She's returning now from a visit with her boyfriend who has unexpectedly broken up with her. Knowing this and seeing her expression, she most likely feels which one of the following emotions? Sad, furious, neutral, relieved, suspicious, cannot be determined none of the above, or don't know. So now you're given a little more information. With that information and seeing the expression, which one of those is she all the way from A through G? Now it turns out in this standardized emotional intelligence test, the best score for those last four questions would have been F. If you put an F on those, you get four points. If you put a, I'm sorry, not an F, it was a G. G, you get four points. F, you get three points. If you put an E, you get two points. And if you put a D, you get one point on those last four questions. And the reason why, if you put those other things there, you were engaged in mind reading. Mind reading is a cognitive distortion. We are engaged in mind reading when we say, I know what you're thinking. You're only saying that because, don't hand me that, you know what I mean. You would never do that unless, I just know they are talking about me right now. If he really cared, he wouldn't do that. Studies have shown, there's been some well done studies on mind reading, there's only a one in four chance you'll be right with strangers or those you don't know well. A one in four chance. I was actually at a dinner last night where uh, one of the um, uh, seminar speakers was engaged in the practice of mind reading of someone he didn't know next to him and was actually doing a good, good job. He was getting the one in four uh, chance uh, there uh, that was there, but he could have equally made some significant mistakes. Studies have also been shown on women and men. Who do you think does better in regards to mind reading? It turns out they're equal in their ability to read the minds of others. Now, if you know someone very well, for instance, a spouse, you've had a loving relationship with them for years, it turns out you'll only be right four out of five times. So it raises it up to 80%, but if you can assume that you know what someone else is thinking who you know very well, and you definitely think that you know that, and it happens to be that one out of five chance you're going to be wrong, you're going to significantly adverse affect that relationship. Dr. William X, professor of psychology at the University of Texas and author of the book Everyday Mind Reading, Understanding What Other People Think and Feel is a good book to take a look at in regards to mind reading. Now, we need to understand this. The Bible says, who can read the heart? The Lord. It says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. There are times when we, through the Spirit of God and through experience, and particularly the Spirit of God, we can take a good educated guess in regards to what someone is thinking and be able to respond 
in an appropriate way in anticipation. But I can tell you, without the Spirit of God influencing you and without a deep study of humanity, often you're wrong. We've had people who die suddenly in a hospital, loving relationship with them. The chaplain will come up and see this individual crying and sobbing and say you know, all sorts of things in regards to what they assume that's going on, and then they find out that the individual didn't even have a close relationship with them at all but they were getting a $2,500 retirement check every month because they were still alive. And now that they're gone, they're going to be not getting $2,500 a month, and so they're crying and sobbing because of that and not because they lost the individual in the hospital. And so there's all sorts. You can assume some things that are often uh, quite uh, incorrect. Okay, we're about ready to close. Two texts I'd like to close with on this session, and then remember there's part two. We've only discussed half of the cognitive distortions. The last half are also very important. But here's the, what, the, what Corinthians says. Casting down what? Imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity how many thoughts? Every thought to the obedience of Christ. The psalmist tells us those who are going to be most successful, ultimately successful. He says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? What a desirable goal that is. And then he answers, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, and notice the last phrase, speaketh the truth, where? In his heart. Not to others. The commandment talks about telling each other the truth. That's important as well. But he's talking about those who are ultimately successful are going to think true and accurate thoughts. They are speaking the absolute truth in their own heart. And they're okay when they don't know an answer and when they're not going to assume. They're okay with that because they know there is someone who does know. Uh, and they can have that association with them, with him, the Spirit of God. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your interest in our emotional intelligence. We thank you for how Christ had developed this high EQ and thus would not be swayed when the stresses came upon him and when he was uh, even sleep-deprived. We thank you, Lord, for the mind that you have created us with that has the capacity to continue to improve emotional intelligence throughout life. We pray now that the spirit of truth that you have given us, the comforter, might incline each heart, and may we open the door to your spirit of truth in our lives so that we might exhibit the success that you would have us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.